last week, uh, several people, you know, came up to me and they said, you know, well, we're really glad you're here and, you know, we'd like to have you over, but when you're settled, when you're settled. And um, so this week, I'd like to say I still don't feel settled, but I think I'll start to feel settled when I start to get to know everybody. <laughs> so anytime, like, you guys would like to get together, you know, whether, and you don't have to feed me, really. Like, I'm not looking to, to be uh, babied here or anything. I mean, if you want me to have me over for a meal, of course I'll be happy to come. But if you just want to get coffee at Starbucks or something, that's fine, too. You know, whatever works. I just really want to get to to know everybody. So. Um, so we're about three quarters of the way through Lent, which is that time in the Christian calendar that leads up to Easter. And if you gave up something for Lent, as people in some branches of the church do, you're getting close to being able to enjoy that thing again, right? So that's pretty cool. You've got about two weeks left. Getting this close to Easter also means that I've had to stop shaving. Um, I'll explain. This last Thursday was my last a uh, chance to shave before Easter because uh, the worship pastor at my former church, Trinity Covenant, asked if I would portray Jesus in our Maundy Thursday and Good Friday services. So I agreed to do that, which means I have to grow a two-week beard. So if I seem to be looking a little more Jesus-ish than, than usual over the next couple Sundays, it's not because I have some sort of weird complex. Um, that's why. At the last board meeting, I gave a heads up that I would be participating in this service, and I warned that I'd be looking a little rough around the edges for my first month here, and Steve Bell was like, nice. (laughs) So, I mean, my beard is not going to look as impressive as his, but I'm glad I have his support. So since we're getting closer to Easter, I thought that today would be a good time to look at a special event that occurred near the end of Jesus' ministry, uh, most likely just a little while before Palm Sunday, which is what we're going to be looking at next week. And this is called the Anointing at Bethany. And the text that we're looking at is from Mark 14, 1 through 11. Mark 14, 1 through 11. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way, sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Okay, 
So let's review what just happened here in a little more detail. Now, this story is actually recorded in two other Gospels, and each account has details that the others don't. So when we look at all three together, we get a fuller picture of what's going on. And John's Gospel tells us that that this woman who anointed Jesus was a woman by the name of Mary, not Mary, the mother of Jesus, but a different Mary. There's Marys all over the place in the New Testament. It's confusing, but this is Mary who's the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Uh, This is the same Mary who was praised by Jesus for choosing to spend time with him instead of doing the household chores. You You might remember that her sister Martha was busy trying to be a good hostess, trying to prepare a meal, and she got mad because Mary was just sitting there and talking to Jesus. And uh, Martha said to Jesus, hey, tell my sister to stop being lazy and help me. And Jesus, like in this story, defended Mary and said that Mary had actually chosen the better thing by just spending time with him, just listening to him. Uh, This is also the same Mary who witnessed Jesus raising her brother Lazarus from the dead after he had been in the tomb for four days. So this woman has some pretty exciting history with Jesus. And this dinner party that was happening, according to John's Gospel, was attended by Jesus, the disciples, Lazarus, post-resurrection Lazarus, uh, and it was being served by, who else? Martha, who I suspect was probably a little frustrated that her sister was dumping perfume on Jesus' head instead of doing the dishes. Um, Now, in John's Gospel, the story takes place right after Lazarus has been raised. So this may have been kind of a welcome back from the dead party for Lazarus. Whatever the case, I'm sure that the awe and amazement from that miracle was still lingering. Like I can imagine the disciples eyeing Lazarus around the table. That guy was dead. He was dead. Look at him chewing on those pomegranates. Like nothing ever happened. This is amazing. And so as Jesus and the disciples and the recently resurrected Lazarus are reclining at the table, enjoying this meal that Martha's serving them, Mary, this exuberant sister, she runs into the room, and her heart is overflowing with gratitude and love for Jesus. See, unlike other teachers of the time who only taught men, Jesus had allowed Mary to sit at his feet like any other male disciple. Um, And now... This Jesus has just raised her brother from the dead. So Mary charges into the room, filled with with joy and gratitude. She's carrying this big jar of perfume. And perfume was a really big deal in those days. uh, Because smelling bad was kind of a fact of life. You know, everybody smelled bad. And perfume was this luxury item that could remedy that. So Mary comes in with a lot of really nice perfume. In fact, she has so much perfume... And it's so nice that it's worth more than a year's worth of wages. So more than a year's worth of wages. Well, let's put that in perspective. According to data from U.S. Social Security, the median net wage for a working individual, one working individual in the United States in 2015 is $28,031. So about $30,000. Now... $30,000 today, that could get you a pretty decent new car, right? Um, Here's some other things that could get you. Get you 50, 55-inch HDTVs. 
54 iPhone 6s. 6.5 years of my health insurance payments, which would be pretty <laughs> awesome. Eight years worth of groceries for one person. 200 pet sugar gliders. Two authentic life-size gingerbread houses. Or 1,500 fire extinguishers, which we now know the value of. They are priceless. So Mary takes this perfume, and she just dumps it on Jesus' head, like it's Gatorade after the championship game, which I hope none of you are focusing on too much right now. I know there's a championship game going on right at this very moment, so um, <clears throat> hopefully it's not too distracting. So she, he, she dumps all this perfume on Jesus' head, and John's Gospel tells us that not only did the perfume cover Jesus' head, but actually ran all the way down to his feet. And it says that Mary used her hair to wipe Jesus' feet with the perfume. And culturally, that was a really profound thing that she did. Because even more so than today, feet were considered to be gross. And a woman's hair was considered to be her glory. So when Mary does this, it's like she's saying, uh, my glory is lesser than your grossness. So it's an amazing thing that she's doing. It's a profound act of, of reverence. And so the disciples see this extravagant display, and they say, what a waste! $30,000 worth of perfume. This perfume could have been sold. The money could have been given to the poor. What are you thinking, Mary? And you have to admit, the disciples have a point, don't they? I mean, six and a half years of my health insurance payments. Eight years of groceries. That's a lot of money that could have been given to the poor. But all that just gets spent in 30 seconds. $30,000 in 30 seconds. And for what? Smelling nice for a little while? Surely Jesus doesn't approve. But Jesus defends Mary. Leave her alone, he says. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. So the question I want to ask this afternoon is, why was this a beautiful thing? Why was it a beautiful thing that Mary gave up $30,000 and 30 seconds on the way Jesus smells? Well, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say I don't think the reason is because Jesus thinks how he smells is that important. Jesus doesn't have much to say in the Gospels about the importance of smelling good. Uh, he does, though, have a lot to say about the importance of caring for the poor. In fact, when this story is told in Matthew's Gospel, it's actually right after Jesus has that famous line, whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did for me. So in that passage, Jesus tells the disciples that they have a responsibility to care for those who are hungry and thirsty, those who lack shelter and clothing, and those who are sick or in prison. And he says that if they neglect to do that, it's like they're neglecting him, like they're neglecting Jesus himself. So I want to really emphasize this. It is so, so important. It is critical that we read this story in context because we need to recognize that when Jesus says, you will always have the poor among you, it's not like he's saying, well, don't worry that much about the poor because you're never going to be able to solve that problem anyway. Because he just said, whatever you do to the least of these, 
you did to me. So we should never use that passage to justify, justify neglect of the poor. And I bring that up because some people have done that. And uh, we can't do that. The Bible doesn't allow us to do that. Jesus doesn't allow us to do that. So Jesus cares about the poor. He wants his followers to care about the poor. And I'm pretty sure he cares more about the poor than how he smells. But he still says to Mary, you have done a beautiful thing to me. Why? Why was it beautiful? What Mary did was beautiful because in that moment, Mary expressed the fact that there is nothing more valuable than Jesus. Nothing. $30,000 in 30 seconds might seem extravagant, but it's nowhere near as extravagant as Jesus himself. God in human flesh, who is about to offer himself for the sins of the world. Now that is truly extravagant. And Mary recognizes that. The hymn writer Isaac Watts recognized this too. In the lyrics to When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, he wrote, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. So Watts is saying that if he possessed the whole creation and then he gave it back to Jesus, that still would not be enough to repay him for what he's done. Forget $30,000 worth of perfume, even if he could offer all the oceans, all the trees, all the stars, all the perfume and iPhones and sugar gliders in the world, if all of it was given to Jesus, it still wouldn't be enough. Because nothing's more valuable than Jesus. Now maybe you're here today, and you can't even begin to imagine why Jesus would be this big of a deal. And if that's you and you want to know more, uh, then please, you know, talk to me, talk to one of the prayer ministers who's up here during communion. There's a lot of people here who would like be very happy to talk to you about why Jesus is more valuable than anything else. But the Cliff Notes version is this. We believe that nothing is more valuable than Jesus because we believe that Jesus is God and that through Jesus it's possible to know God and to experience the true purpose of life and to experience everlasting life, eternal life, now and forever. But there's a lot more to be said there, so if you're interested, let's talk. Or just keep coming, because you'll, you'll get a fuller picture of who Jesus is over time. Um, but for most of us here, though, my guess is that we already believe, at least in principle, that nothing is more valuable than Jesus. But we're trying to figure out what that looks like, what it looks like to live in light of that fact, of that reality. And for those of us who are in that situation, I think this story has something really important to say about what it looks like when we do that. And here's what I think it shows us. Sometimes, if we really believe that nothing is more valuable than Jesus, we're going to end up doing things that might seem wasteful, or fanatical to those around us. Now, I'm not saying that we should aspire to come off as crazy. I want to put a big qualifier there. That shouldn't be our goal. That's not a good goal. But all I'm saying is that if we really do believe that nothing is more valuable than Jesus, and if we live as if that's true, 
then eventually someone is going to think, that's a waste. Or, that's, a, that's fanatical. In our culture today, it's acceptable, and it's even sometimes admired, to value a lot of the things that Jesus values. You probably won't be thought of as wasteful or fanatical by people if you donate some money to the poor, or if you volunteer at a soup kitchen, or if you help an elderly neighbor take care of their yard. And those are all great things to do. They're, they're all things that, that Jesus would want us to do. They're things that the church has to do. But those aren't things that, at least now, are likely to get you accused of being wasteful or fanatical. But say you try to tell someone about Jesus, about how great you think he is because he died on the cross for our sins and can bring us into relationship with God, then you might get some people looking at you funny. You might even have someone whisper, fanatic. The same thing might happen if you try to invite people to church. Or say you spend a significant amount of time every week in prayer or worship because you value Jesus. That's the sort of thing that people can have a hard time seeing value in. For those who don't realize that nothing is more valuable than Jesus, they might think you're wasting your time. Or say you choose to be celibate unless you're married because you believe that's what God wants. That's another decision that, for those who don't realize that there's nothing more valuable than Jesus, it's going to seem like a waste or fanaticism. Or say you sacrifice advancement in your career because you believe that it's important to take a Sabbath day every week to go to church. For some people, maybe your employer, maybe your coworkers, that sacrifice is going to seem like a waste, like a waste of potential. And I think that what can happen to us is that we can, get, we can be tempted to only value Jesus in the ways that those who don't value Jesus find it acceptable to only give the occasional donation to the poor or help out practically in the community, but not to actually ever talk about Jesus or do anything that might be seen by the the, the surrounding community as extravagant. And please don't think I'm being accusatory. I'm just saying this has been the case in my own life. Um, I have been tempted to only value Jesus in ways that those around me will find acceptable, you know, in ways where people aren't going to look at me and go, that's weird. But what Mary challenges us to do is to ask ourselves, do we value Jesus enough to do things that others might think of as wasteful or fanatical? Or do we just want to stick to valuing him in ways that our culture says, that's okay, that's that's fine, you do that? Because I think if we're only willing to show our love for him in safe ways, people won't realize how valuable we think Jesus is. Our love for Jesus will just kind of blend in with the values of the culture and the truth that nothing is more valuable than Jesus will be buried and hidden. It'll be really hard to find. What I'm saying is that Mary reminds us that valuing Jesus means putting our reputation on the line sometimes. It means doing things that might seem a little out there to some people. And that's okay, because nothing is more valuable than Jesus. Now, this is just my second week here, but the little amount of time I have been here has led me to think that this is a church filled with people who believe that nothing is more valuable than Jesus. And I think it's a church where people are willing to put their reputations on the line, if needed, 
in order to value Jesus fully. And so this is not meant to be a reprimand or correction, but a reminder. But I also want it to be an encouragement. Because remember what Jesus says to Mary. After Mary does this extravagant act, this act that seems so wasteful to the people around her, Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. And I'm sure you haven't spent $30,000 on perfume anytime recently for Jesus. But it's very possible that you've spent or sacrificed something because you value Jesus more than anything else. You know, and if you have this afternoon, I want you to hear Jesus saying to you, you have done a beautiful thing for me. If you gave up a romantic relationship because he or she didn't value Christ the way you do, you have done a beautiful thing for me. If you strained your budget to donate to missions one month, you have done a beautiful thing to me. If you've given up your Saturdays for the last 14 years to lead people in worship, you have done a beautiful thing for me. If you've lost friends, not because you were rude or mean or pushy, but just because you were trying to be faithful to Christ, you have done a beautiful thing for me. And if you've spent significant time with Jesus in prayer, in worship, not to impress anyone, but just to be with him, you have done a beautiful thing for me. So be encouraged. But be even more encouraged by this. Jesus has done an even more beautiful thing for us. And what Jesus did was offer his life for our sake. Jesus points out that Mary did what she did because she was anointing him for burial. In those days, it was common practice to anoint a dead body with perfume so that as it decomposed, it wouldn't smell. But usually you didn't do the anointing until the body was dead. But Mary did it when Jesus was alive because she knew that he was going to be executed as a criminal which means he wasn't going to get that anointing. So Mary anointed Jesus because she knew that Jesus was going to be giving his life, and she believed that what Jesus was about to offer was something far more valuable than $30,000 worth of perfume. Jesus gave his life so that we might live. He gave his life to free us from the penalty of sin. He gave his life so that we might be free from condemnation and free to be fully alive now and forever. He has done a beautiful thing for us, and nothing's more valuable than him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our minds around how valuable you are and how valuable what you've done for us is. But I pray, God, that you would help us to see it And uh, that through that, Lord, we would just have hearts of gratitude and thanks that are like Mary's. And Lord, we want you to channel that gratitude and thanks into things that really please you and honor you, whatever they may be. And if that leads us sometimes into places that might seem to those on the outside world as wasteful or fanatical, God, I pray that you'd give us the courage to do that. But I pray that we'd always be led by your spirit, Lord that what we do um, in all things would please you, God. Help us to see you as, you as you truly are, to know you as the most valuable thing we could ever know or experience. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.